This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. Well... We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. My name is Clara Cook and joining me today is my fellow co-host Duncan Barrett. Hello Duncan. How are you Hi today? Clara, good to see you as ever. You're looking a little pale today, Duncan. Oh, am I? I, I, <laughs> I thought I'd spent enough time out in the sun that you, I'd, I'd be all right. You're yeah. feeling okay? You're think, not definitely yeah, coming well, down with anything? As far as I know, but, you know, maybe I should go and see the doctor just in case. <laughs> Better safe than sorry with these, I think. Yeah, I mean, especially if it's, you know, contagious and could spread to a lot of people. So today uh, we are talking about epidemics. We're talking about epidemics in Star Trek, disease in sci-fi, and why, and why are we looking at the subject? Like, why would we be talking about diseases and epidemics and pandemics which are really huge epidemics in which a lot of people get ill and there's a huge death toll and you're probably wondering why are Duncan and Clara talking about yet again another very because depressing subject that's just how we roll you know? <laughs> <laughs> we, we pick the fun topics for you here on primitive culture I mean one thing to emphasize at first is that we are not doctors we are not medical professionals mm-hmm. so the research that we have we're, we're done. Podcasters, we're podcasters, not doctors. <laughs> not, yeah, exactly. We are not medical doctors. So if uh, we make a mistake in some way in like referring to something, some disease or some medical condition, please and be you kind. Know, should we offer any medical advice, you might want to take it under advisement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Especially if you're feeling sick or you have spots on your body, body or, you know, you're like dying or something. The reason why I chose epidemics and why I dragged Duncan along for this disgusting ride is because I'm quite interested in diseases, uh, fine diseases, and especially epidemics themselves and pandemics quite exciting, quite interesting. There's something that um, very terrifying and frightening about the idea that the smallest creatures on the planet can actually have the power to uh, destroy our society, destroy our culture, pretty much in a very short space of time when there's a widespread pandemic i think it sort of looms large in the collective imagination of anyone who owns a tv or has read the news or has read any history um, and we're basically we're talking about the overwhelming destruction of a population by the tiniest of enemies so a virus or a bacteria that causes widespread sickness panic devastation and death <laughs> and so plagues and epidemics and infectious diseases is what we're going to talk about today so First of all, what is an epidemic? What is a plague? And how is this different from other diseases? And what's a pandemic? Because that was something I wasn't all that clear about before we went into this. What's the difference between an epidemic and a pandemic? Well, so a pandemic is like much... Bigger epidemic. But bigger right. epidemic, yeah. It's across multiple countries and multiple continents. So it made me think from a kind of Star Trek perspective, once you have uh, a disease, for example, in Operation Annihilate, is it? I think where there's there's some question about the, those... Uh, 
fried egg monster virus things uh, <laughs> getting off the, the planet, planet and onto another planet. <laughs> Is that then a pan pandemic? What do we, you know, what do we get after that? Intergalactic pandemic. A galactic demic. A galactic demic. Yeah, I mean, I would assume a pandemic in Star Trek would be something that encompasses a whole world. But you're right, if it does end up across several worlds or several colonies or several starships, I mean, could you? Mm-hmm. Could it be a pandemic if it's not even on a planet? If it's on several ships? Well, I guess we have ships in the real world, don't we, that carry diseases from one continent to another, for example. So possibly, maybe. Possibly. So just a little bit of background about the word epidemic. It comes from the Greek epi, which means upon or above, and demos, which is the people. Um, It's the rapid spread of an infectious disease to a large number of people in a given population within a short period of time, usually two weeks or less. The epidemic may be restricted to one location. However, like we were saying, if it spreads to other countries, then it becomes a pandemic. So what are the factors that lead to an epidemic? Several factors. Climate change, like if there's a Uh, or seasonal change, you know, so uh, some diseases don't survive in cold weather, but if there's a sudden heat wave, they can kind of come back from being dormant. Uh, So environmental changes, changes in living conditions. So if people are living in a situation where there's not good sanitation, or uh, they're living in a situation where there's, you know, there's no food, that kind of thing, um, they're malnourished, diseases are rife in situations like that. Certain times of the year, so there's always, obviously, we know in the UK, I don't know if this happens across the US, but in the UK there's a flu season, so part of this winter, you know, everyone goes to the NHS and gets a little flu jab. And then also there's also disease carriers, so like rats, fleas, mosquitoes, mosquitoes carry malaria, rats, really disgusting, plague. <laughs> carry plague, yeah. or the fleas, I guess. And that's, the, the, rats the, the rats carry the plague. Carry the fleas. Yeah, exactly, and the fleas spread the plague. Mm-hmm. And people with little or no immunity coming into contact with humans who have immunity to a particular disease. So the last one is the one that really interests me, because that's the kind of thing that I think that could have been explored more in Star Trek, which is mm-hmm. that people coming into contact with other people, first contact, and they have a disease that they're sort of immune to that they don't really think about and spreading it to people who've never had that disease and so have no immunity. And I'm thinking of smallpox as a really yeah. good example of this. Definitely, definitely. I mean, yeah, I don't know if we do see that in Star Trek. We sort of see the opposite. Say in the episode The Quickening, it's established quite early on that Bashir and Dax are not going to contract the disease that is killing everyone on that planet. So I suppose you get this sense of immunity against an alien disease. But yeah, definitely that idea of what happened in the real world with smallpox, you know, and particularly with the kind of Europeans coming over to America and infecting the native populations with smallpox, in some cases deliberately. I mean, there was that instance of the whatever they were, blankets or, or um, scarves or whatever, that were deliberately handed over in order to specifically as a form of, uh, you know, specifically as a form of bacteriological warfare, really, to, uh, you know, put smallpox into that population with the idea of killing them. Yeah, it's true. I mean, smallpox is probably the biggest example. I mean, there are other examples of like, especially in parts of South America, of people catching something quite simple, like a mm-hmm. respiratory illness that we mm-hmm. would all have immunity to. But smallpox, you're right, is the big one. And, well, we can go on to talk about smallpox, but uh, just to mention some other diseases as well while we're at it. So, like, probably list up a... Clara's catalogue of horrors. A few yeah. epidemics. I mean, if you want to have nightmares at night, I would recommend Googling smallpox. I, I made the mistake while researching for this podcast. Yeah, I did that one today. Yeah. And <laughs> at lunchtime. It's pretty, it's pretty horrific. And because we've heard, we've heard the names of these diseases a lot in history or in the news, I don't think we quite understand as people who perhaps haven't suffered from epidemics or pandemics not one and I would say recent living memory Mm. we probably have this idea of what we think they're like and actually when you start reading about them and you read about the actual symptoms they are far more nightmarish and horrific than you can imagine so 
some of the epidemics in history that have captured public imagination are the Black Death, of course, Black Death, um, which pretty much killed 30% of Western Europe's population. Smallpox, which ravaged America after the Europeans arrived, killing entire tribes in New England and decimate, like decimating the Aztec and Inca civilizations. Cholera, which actually was a, quite a problem in London for many years until recent history, you know, I mean, until got clean sanitation. Influenza, which still is an issue. People still die from flu. I mean, about 250,000 to 500,000 people die from flu each year. Uh, ty- typhus, polio, uh, swine flu, bird flu, SARS. The recent one is Ebola. Uh, Ebola is a really terrifying disease. You can tell I'm enjoying this, can't you? <laughs> just gets better and better, you know. <laughs> What's next? I don't know why. I'm just one of those awful people that sort of enjoys this kind of horrible history. Do you know, the funny thing is, I mean, you were saying we don't live with epidemics, and I suppose that is true. We have, you know, we haven't lived through, uh, in our lifetime, anything on the scale of, say, the Spanish flu outbreak of 1918-19, uh, when, you know, I don't know, a third of the population of the world, I think, were infected with that, and many, many millions of people died. On the other hand, we have lived through these kind of temporary panics. So you mentioned bird flu, swine flu, etc. I mean, I remember I was actually in Mexico when the bird, when the swine flu epidemic, or when the spine, swine flu phenomenon hit. And everyone back home in London was sending us these panic messages saying, you know, you're in Mexico, the swine flu, what are you doing? You're going to die. <laughs> uh, no one in Mexico was the least bit concerned, basically. Um, but what happened was all the tourists, we were there for two weeks, and all the tourists who were meant to come out for the second week didn't arrive because they'd all been told not to travel to Mexico. So suddenly all the hotels in Mexico were desperate for customers. And uh, my partner and I were basically, you know, could just walk down the street and stay in a five-star hotel for like <laughs> peanuts, basically, because they were desperate for custom. But there was this kind of weird sense I got then of like the panic being way out of proportion with the actual crisis, if you know what I mean, insofar as the people on the ground were just like, yeah, well, you know, it's not like it was no big deal no one was particularly concerned people were not panicking in the streets but the people who were reading their newspapers and watching the tv news and so on and emailing us every day were in a state of kind of great alarm about it because they saw it as this kind of uh you know terrifying epidemic and i suppose that's one of the things which we see a little bit of um in some of the examples in star trek i guess of the sort of psychological impact of an epidemic taking place of that kind of being trapped, not being able to escape it. I mean, I'm thinking, for example, in the Deep Space Nine episode, Babel, uh, where there's this disease which seems to be confined to the station and they're very keen to quarantine it on the station. But there's this one captain who's desperate to leave. He's kind of panicking and he actually tries to sort of forcibly remove his ship from the station, even though that means he'll then be carrying the disease on. So I suppose that's one one element of... I suppose you were sort of asking, what is it about these diseases that fascinates us? There's also this question of what is it about these diseases that terrifies us? you know, possibly out of proportion to the specific danger in a given case. But at the same time, obviously, you know, you talk about plague, you talk about the flu epidemic of 1918, you talk about these these kind of instances of diseases that have killed vast numbers of people. It's not surprising that there is a kind of residual panic attached to these things for us. Yeah, I think the probably the, the biggest thing that, well, one of the biggest things that scares people about epidemics or pandemics especially ones that are have a very high uh, contraction rate, like a very high sort of spreading rate and also a very high death toll, is that we're used to 
I think in the public imagination now and, and just now like our society we're used to the idea of people dying from disease when they're very young or they're very old mm. so every year a certain number of people die from flu right but the, the people who get the free jab on the NHS flu flu jab are people who have asthma or have had cancer or people who are older or people who are pregnant people with babies so we have this idea that like we expect those people to suffer and we expect those people to get the disease we expect those people to die now of course that doesn't come for anyone who has an elderly parent or a young child or a pregnant partner but the diseases that i'm talking about the diseases that people until very recently really until like even just a hundred years ago would be it would suffer from and in the ancient world was something that was a common occurrence are diseases that kill people in their prime people mm. in their young kill people like us people who were in their 30s who were healthy uh, so there was no real protection against it and they didn't just kill you they killed your parents and they killed your friends and they killed your, your family. Entire family they yeah. killed your entire village yeah and there's people who did survive whether it's through some sort of natural immunity that they had somehow genetically or because they were somehow stronger in some way or they did some sort of strange uh, remedy or something that mm. you know or they were just lucky those people will often be left with no one that they were related to or that they knew because everyone else had died and so whether or not a civilization or society survives in the event of pandemic isn't actually really down to medical professionals. It's not down to scientists. They are the ones that will find some sort of cure or vaccine or some sort of treatment. But it's actually down to re regular citizens and human beings, regular people like you and I, because the regular people like you and I are the ones who tend to behave badly when there's some sort of medical crisis. Mm. They are the ones that... Uh, you know, sort of spread rumours. They are the ones that, you know, the scapegoats, like a particular group of or people in society are, the one, are blamed for the disease. I mean, a lot of people blamed uh, the Jews for the Black Death at some one point, and so it's discrimination against Jews. Uh, they're the people who uh, don't bury the dead bodies, so the dead bodies lie in the streets. They're the people that spread the disease because they flee a quarantine. So just like we were just like talking about in Star Trek. So... In a way, it's a perfect subject for science fiction. It's the perfect mm. subject because it's asking what would you do in a very difficult, moral, morally difficult, but also very frightening situation. And I feel that Star Trek's very much addressed that in terms of other catastrophic events like war uh, or some, I guess, some sort of big diplomatic issue. Or you think about how many people have died through other means in Star mm. Trek. So what I wanted to know is why haven't they done a giant, big, glorious epidemic episode? <laughs> well, or even like a series. I mean, you, you, yeah, you, you know, you could have Starfleet Medical Corps ship, you, you know, trying to, to solve the problem, I guess. I mean, yeah, it's true. They tend to be quite sort of self-contained storylines. I mean, I guess we had, we were talking earlier about the, the idea of weaponizing disease. You know, you, you do have towards the end of Deep Space Nine that disease which is afflicting changelings, which has actually been kind of engineered by section 31 That's and stuff. True. so you do have there that idea of a kind of that is, i suppose an ongoing storyline about a kind of um uh, a disease in a sense but yeah, you're right. Maybe that's something that we don't tend to see. It tends to be quite uh, episodic. It's quite sort of localised. I mean, there's usually some form of quarantine in place insofar as if it's taking place on one planet. Uh, yes, we want to save the inhabitants of that planet, but ultimately if it all goes wrong, they're all going to die. But we're kind of trying to... The spread that we're trying to prevent usually is, is the disease getting off the kind of 
more primitive planet and onto the Federation starship. And of course, they have all the technology in place. They have biofilters in the transporter. They have an Enterprise, their decontamination gel, which obviously is, is absolutely critical to the functioning of that <laughs> ship. And, you, you know, uh, totally necessary to have all those scenes where we see them rubbing each other down with gel. Um, <laughs> But at the same time, over and over again, what happens is quarantine is broken. And that's one of the things that I suppose is quite interesting is, uh, you know, we were talking about the kind of people like you and me who might panic and might do something stupid and break quarantine. But actually in Star Trek, often it's the professionals who do it. It's the doctors. I mean, in Unnatural Selection, it's Dr. Pulaski who risks breaking quarantine against advice that she's getting from everyone and ends up infecting herself with the with the you know, rapid aging phenomenon. In macrocosm, it's actually the doctor who uh, insists on, what is he, he, he beams himself back up and, and takes the virus with him or something. Mm, yeah. Anyway, he's, there's this kind of ongoing disagreement between him and Chakotay. And he's saying from a kind of humanitarian perspective, let's beam people up. We want to help people. We want to kind of, you know, do our sort of frontier medicine and get our hands, uh, get stuck in and, and kind of start healing people. And Chakotay is the one saying, actually, you know, we have rules. You have to do this. You have to follow the quarantine procedure, etc. And in the end, of course, they do bring the uh, macrovirus up onto the ship and it infects everyone. And, you know, only fortunately, because Janeway happened to be somewhere else at the time, is she able to come in later and, and kind of save the day? Which I guess also sort of ties into that idea, you know, you were saying, why, why is there one or two people who aren't affected, whether that's to do with something to do with their own biochemistry or their own genetics, or, you know, in that instance, it's because she was away on, on some away mission or whatever. Um, one of the things that struck me, one of the things I watched as part of the sort of research for this was a film which is actually referenced in Star Trek. It's referenced in the um, Enterprise episode Observer Effect, which is the Andromeda Strain. And the Andromeda Strain was a film from 1971, I think, about an alien disease that comes to Earth, basically. It's based on a, a novel by Michael Crichton who wrote Jurassic Park. I'd very much recommend both the novel and the film. They're both very good in their, in their various ways. But one of the things that's very eerie and creepy about that film is that so this disease basically infects this uh, sort of small American town everyone dies apart from one very old and slightly crazy man and a crying baby and so the mystery is it's in some ways, it's kind of almost worse than if they were all just dead and, and it just killed everyone. But it's the fact that there's this screaming baby that won't stop screaming and there's this kind of deranged man wandering around and no one can kind of get any sense out of him or work out what is, you know, why have they been spared? What is it about them? And a lot of the book and a lot of the film as well is about these various scientists who are trying to work out what is it that these two seemingly quite random characters have in common that has enabled them to survive this disease because otherwise this is a disease that you know it kills within minutes it can kind of uh, wipe out the population of the earth and they're desperately trying to work out you know sort of do the science on it and work out what is it about these two very different human beings that has enabled them to survive i actually remember watching that film um as a i think it was a child maybe or maybe slightly older than a child probably Mm. not appropriate for children but um i don't remember it really frightening me especially the first few scenes where they go into the town and there's all this everybody's just dead yeah and they use split screen as well. It's quite sort of innovative in the way that they use kind of split screen framing. And the way it works is so you see one half of the screen, you see the characters that you're following kind of wandering around the town. And then it just flashes up these kind of still images of what they're seeing. And they're mm. just all these yeah, corpses, yeah. basically. And uh, and it's 
it, you know, it's very effective the way the film manages it to really just convey that kind of horror and that kind of visceral horror of of what it's like to be surrounded by dead bodies, you know, to be in this town where literally everyone has just died suddenly and the kind of, and it's not just adults, you know, it's children, it's pets, it's, you know, everyone is dead. And the other thing that's quite freaky about it is that they... Um, they do some kind of limited experiments on them. They find that basically their blood has uh, solidified. Um, and so they, there's one scene where they cut a guy's sort of wrist open and this oh, dry yeah, blood I remember falls this. out. And I, I watched that film as a kid as well. I watched it, you know, sitting up in bed late at night. It was on BBC Two at like 11 o'clock at night or something. And for years afterwards, I had this nightmare about my, uh, like, the, the peeling the flesh off my hand and, and it all being crumbled inside. And the weird thing is, it's not until I watched that film again last week that I realised that's where it came from. But it obviously, like, lodged deeply in my psyche, which I guess, <laughs> you know, goes again to show how frightening these things are. Mm. And I think that film is very good. And, and the Enterprise episode, Observer Effect, actually is very good in, in some of the same ways, because it does sort of borrow from that film in a way, at getting a sense of how fast and how scary the development of an epidemic like this can be which I suppose is something that maybe Star Trek doesn't always manage to kind of hit that kind of real panic that kind of intense panic but actually I think that episode of Enterprise really you get it It, you know the disease progresses alarmingly quickly and everyone is really racing against the clock to work out what to do and the other thing that's quite interesting about that episode is it's not with the quickening, you kind of have Bashir who goes in quite confident and he seems like he knows what he's doing. He's got a kind of methodology. He's got a plan. Ultimately, of course, it doesn't work, which is kind of tragic and, and heartbreaking. But it, you feel like he sort of knows what he needs to do. I think in the Enterprise episode, it feels much more like they're really up against something and they, and they really don't know what to make of it. Yeah, I mean, I actually didn't think Star Trek did disease particularly well until I watched that episode. And I think part of it is down to the fact that Dr. Phlox doesn't actually know what to do. And he's mm. sort of acting like he doesn't know what to do. And that's one of the reasons I like his character, actually, throughout the entire run of Enterprise, is because I sort of feel like he's at the... It's like frontier medicine. You know, mm. he's at the forefront of, like, the discovery of, 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 of diseases and mm. cures and all sorts of stuff. Like, And he's very easy to it's very quick to admit that he doesn't know what he, he's always know, always know what he's doing. Whereas you're right, Bashir just seems to, like have this inner confidence and he just goes ahead and sort of saves people. And he has a sort of developed sense of, you know, 24th century medicine and he's going to apply all of that knowledge and all of that methodology to finding a cure. And I suppose that's the difference when you look back at some of these diseases uh, through history. I mean, there's a novel called Doomsday Book. It's a science fiction novel about a sort of future historian who goes back and ends up in uh, basically in the middle of the Black Death in kind of plague times. And, And a lot of the kind of drama of that story really is is her awareness of how germs work of you you know things like quarantine but also just things like basic sort of hygiene and so on and trying to convey that to the people at the time and they don't really understand it because they don't really understand what's causing a given disease you know it might be a punishment from god it might be it might be whatever but we, we have that even you know even more recently i mean i was quite struck doing the research for this episode you know looking into say uh, the early days of the discovery of HIV and AIDS that you know when all you get initially is is sort of mysterious anomalous um, things happening in that situation you know people dying from things that you wouldn't expect them to die from in larger numbers and there's this kind of sense of what you know what is it all these people have in common uh, what is going on here and it actually takes a while to get to the point where you even know what the thing is that you're uh, trying to defeat, if you know what I mean. It's so it's it's not just that the disease is like you put it in a microscope and you're like, okay, right, that's it, it's there. Which is 
to be honest, most of the time how it kind of presents in Star Trek, it's quite straightforward. But, you know, there's even that level of mystery of like, we don't really understand why these things are happening. We don't understand what is going on. And with a lot of these kind of epidemics, historically, you know, up until fairly recently, that was the case. You know, is malaria caused by a mosquito or is it caused by uh, this kind of this foul air that, that lives around the swamps? You know, all, all these diseases, there's, there's, there's a sort of hindrance to scientific success in curing them. It is kind of ignorance and the assumptions that people make and the kind of and the interpretations that people put on these diseases uh, that in some cases can hold developments back. Yeah, and a lot of it is because very, well, for many centuries, people didn't know how to differentiate diseases from each other. Mm. So they knew the symptoms of different illnesses, but they didn't understand that illnesses were very different in nature. Um, so they wouldn't necessarily understand that the difference between like smallpox and the sweating sickness. I mean, the, the actual plague epidemic that sort of started the downfall of ancient Rome. I mean, we only have a d- like descriptions of what the symptoms were. We don't actually have an actual diagnosis because at the time people didn't quite understand the difference between one illness and another. Uh, they would just call it the plague or they just call it like uh, the, 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 you know, the Black Death or something. They wouldn't necessarily know it was a pneumonic plague or bubonic plague, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. They couldn't necessarily tell the difference. And now they think it was smallpox that, right. that actually struck Rome in the time of Marcus Aurelius and actually started to basically mm-hmm. destroy the infrastructure of ancient Rome. So, uh, but some people still say, well, maybe it was you know, something else, but they probably think it was smallpox. So that part of it is people didn't know because they didn't have the medical knowledge, but they also didn't necessarily think to differentiate diseases from each other. And there's one thing that doesn't appear in Star Trek, which you did actually mention here, um, which is very much connected to AIDS, which is that, and it does appear actually in other science fiction. I'm thinking very, I'm thinking of Babylon 5, the TV series Babylon 5. There's a, mm-hmm. a really good episode about, about an epidemic in Babylon 5 um, called... Confessions and Lamentations. Called Confessions and Lamentations. Yes, that's right. And that's a really good episode. If anybody wants to see how an epidemic in sci-fi should be done, that's definitely a, a good a good example. And there is an element, in, uh, there is an aspect in there also to do with the social stigma of being ill and having um, have contagious disease. One of the things that um, is interesting is that, yeah, it's true, a lot of people didn't actually understand what AIDS was right at the beginning, but also there was a lot of... I would say shame and discrimination mm. attached to the illness. And I would say even the authorities were reluctant to get involved. Mm. Um, and I think also um, it wasn't necessarily high up on the political agenda until many, many people had mm. died because of the fact that it affected the, the homosexual community. Mm. And because people didn't really understand, it's possibly an STD. I'm not sure they, all, they knew it was an STD right at the beginning, but, you know. And, and it ties into all those ideas that you see with other uh, epidemics of, you know, this is God's judgment on people. And yeah. this is, you know, these people are, are almost deserving of this illness. Yeah. And all and, those kind of attitudes. And the, and the big one that comes to mind as well is syphilis. So right. a lot more people were affected with syphilis than we actually realise. Because even today, modern historians are unwilling to say that somebody who is a high profile writer or poet or, mm. or philosopher or scientist you know who's who's well known in history that we all look up to because he's done something great um and it's normally a he let's be honest because women's history isn't as well covered actually had syphilis mm-hmm. but they will be showing symptoms of syphilis mm-hmm. and because there was so much sort of i mean people are going to have sex they're just going to do it right mm-hmm. um, regardless of the morals of the time regardless of this contraceptive available they're going to do it anyway and syphilis was was wide and widespread. I mean, it was, you could call it an epidemic. Mm. It's not an epidemic that affects people within two to three weeks, but 
you know, it, it is something that affected huge swathes of people. And because of the stigma of it, because it's an STD, mm. even now it's being it's being covered up. And people, I mean, it's quite Byron probably had syphilis. Mm-hmm. You know, Lord Byron. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, exactly. But you don't really <laughs> you don't, you don't really hear people talking yeah. about. You know, I mean. You know, it's not something that, that people talk about a lot when they're talking about famous authors or Where writers. tuberculosis has a kind of romantic... Exactly, you know I mean? exactly. Sort of romantic, consumptive yeah. poet. But where is that? It's kind of, where's know. that in Star Trek? That's the thing. Um, what I find the Star Trek, which is really good, is that... And I'm thinking this is a good thing. It's more of a utop- utopian idea, which is that when there, an illness does come along, there doesn't seem to be judgment attached to it when treating it. Flocks well, wants to find out. The you, you oh yeah, that's that true. Yeah, of, you, with the Panar syndrome, exactly they do that. You know, slightly kind of uh, heavy-handed sort of HIV/AIDS storyline. But you know, you certainly you see that the idea of the stigma attached to that particular disease, because yeah. very much it's associated with something which is you know is almost like a kind of sexual act with this yeah. kind of mind, intimate, kind of intimate, yeah. intimate act exactly. And we see that they are very kind of backward in their sort of way of dealing with it as a result. I mean. I know what you mean. I, I think that that, that Babylon Five episode is it, is great. I don't feel particularly down on Star Trek for the way that it's dealt with. <laughs> to be honest, I mean, I, I personally, I think like an episode like The Quickening is a fantastic true, episode. Yeah. I, I do think Observer Effects is great. I mean, yeah, some maybe some of these other episodes. The I don't know, The Naked Now and The Naked Time. You know, <laughs> th- th- there's 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 interesting stuff in there. I mean, actually, you know, one thing they do have going for them, I think, particularly in Naked Time, is that sense of the uncanny and that sense of the kind of freakiness of it, which again kind of reminds me very much of the Andromeda Strain and that kind of phenomena of, you know, walking into this place where, because again, in that film, there's that sense, you know, and the, and the book and the film were written only a couple of years after the Star Trek episode debuted, so I don't know whether Michael Crichton would have seen it, but, you know, definitely there's that kind of, there's all this talk about the person who's, in both the Star Trek episodes, the person who has frozen in the shower, and, Mm. you know, people doing kind of weird uh, things because they're sort of out of their minds, and in the Andromeda strain there's the same phenomenon of um, there's the people who just drop down dead but then there's the people who I can't remember the biochemistry behind it, but it takes longer and it kind of affects their minds, so they end up either killing themselves or kind of you know, just doing quite crazy things basically before they die, which means that so as, as well as the kind of shock of this tableau of dead bodies all over this town, a uh, decent number of them are dressed strangely or doing weird things or, you know, just like you see in the kind of naked now and the naked time, those kind of that slightly freaky element of it. And I suppose it's interesting when you talk about stigma. I mean, there is an element of in those Star Trek episodes, you know, you see there's in the next gen episode, for example, they walk into the quarters on the ship where clearly a kind of orgy has been taking place or something. Do you know what I mean? There is almost a kind of association of, and obviously we have, you know, Tasha and uh, Data have their kind of hookup when they're <laughs> under the influence. There's there's this kind of weird association because it's it's being likened to intoxication in that situation, mm-hmm. that it is a disease which basically makes you lose your inhibitions. You do wild, promiscuous, slightly out of character things, and then you die horribly. Mm-hmm. So weirdly, it's kind of got that polywater intoxication has got the kind of whole thing round into one disease if you know what I mean it's sort of almost built the stigma into the disease because it makes you do things that yeah. afterwards you know as, as Tasha says it never happened afterwards you're going to regret and then it kills you I think the the whole idea of stigma with illnesses is that the stigma prevents people from actually being rational about the illness and preventing mm-hmm. it from spreading and, mm-hmm. pre- and it prevents people from actually being treated so if you were more honest about like AIDS or, or syphilis or I, I mean with the naked 
with the polywater disease, they're kind of it's affected them. So mm. they, it's not like they're affected and they still have their rational minds. So they can't really make a judgment they about whether about whether or yeah. not that you yeah. know does this, you know how they feel about it. Yeah. But it's the it's it, the stigma prevents people from actually making rational decisions, and that's the big problem when it comes to pandemics and epidemics. I mean, other than the fact that people are dying, obviously. Mm. <laughs> That's the big problem, number mm. one, is that it makes you ill and you die. But the second big problem is that people lose their rational judgment and society starts to break down. And then you get, you know, lawlessness and you get people behaving really badly. And then you do get people breaking quarantines and you mm. get people blaming people and then you get violence and all sorts of stuff. And I mean, one of the things that I thought was really good about the episode Miri which is the, you know, the original series um, episode, is that you kind of see that, you don't see it with adults, because obviously all the adults are dead by that point, but you have seen the destruction of a society. Mm. And the only people left are the children who mm. aren't affected because they're pre-pubescent children. And it's obviously brought on by some sort of hormonal change. It's, it's the Enterprise crew trying to be irrational. They're trying to keep their rationality together mm. while at the same time being frightened I mean, Yeoman Ran kind of has that freak out moment. Of course, the female character has a freak out moment, but she has that freak out moment. And it's very much connected to her fi- way, the way that she looks, right? She starts to freak out because she's going to look different. Yeah. And I was like, no, <laughs> it's not <laughs> rational, man, come on. So they're trying to keep their rationality together, but also the children themselves, I mean, they are only children, so it's not like they can have a ra- they can be rational like adults, but the children themselves also aren't making wise decisions mm. because of fear and anxiety and because they've been left to their own devices and they've lived through this horrible epidemic. And that's kind of an, I mean, I thought that was a decent example of what a widespread epidemic can do to a world or a city or a community. Absolutely. And I guess that is something that, that comes across um, in some ways in the Star Trek episodes that we talking about is this idea of the the kind of social impact of an epidemic i mean you know for example an, an obvious example would be the vidians yeah you know, and the video you know we get this sense the vidians 200 years ago or whenever it you know before the phage came along you know they were artists and and you know humanitarians and all these wonderful things and then this disease has kind of completely torn down the kind of moral fabric of their society in a sense in the, to the extent that when we first meet them you know they're stealing organs off people they're willing to do things that they would never have been willing to do before and this is something that happens you know with real world diseases for example with the plague there was a degree of the kind of social order breaking down which you can see you know part of the evidence for that is, is the way that people were buried you know kind of burial traditions being understandably altered but also there was a lot of commentary at the time about the way that it had an impact on class relations and so on and some of these social changes are not necessarily bad but you know a lot of people felt that because so many people were dying labor became more valuable and therefore kind of laborers and kind of manual workers could actually demand more money for what they were doing they had more money uh, they were buying better clothes and there was this kind of real reaction from the kind of aristocracy saying that you know because of this plague basically you know killing so many people uh the ones who are, are surviving are living the life of riley and you know they're getting above their station and, and you can't tell who's rich and who's poor anymore because you know these kind of poor people have, have got so much money that they're uh, i mean poor kind of socially poor you know in fact they're kind of cash rich and they're and they're spending it all on you know fancy tights or whatever and, <laughs> and confusing everyone and there, there's quite an interesting passage by the poet john gower about this kind of uh, crisis in society, as he calls it, or as, as he sees it. But it, it's something that also comes up in the Enterprise episode, Dear Doctor, where again it has a kind of interesting inflection because there's what's initially presented as this kind of plague, as this kind of disease that's ravaging this society. But then the kind of nub of that episode is when Dr. Flox realizes that 
in fact, this is a kind of natural evolutionary process. Um, and he's very unwilling to stand in the way of it because, as he sees it, it's giving an opportunity to this other kind of species who are going to sort of step forward into the light, in a sense, once this first lot have, have died away. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he talks about the Neanderthals and the other kind of proto-human species on Earth and the fact that for Homo sapiens to kind of develop, these other ones had to fall by the wayside. And that's what he thinks is is going on. It's a very strange episode. I mean, I think that's another in, uh, interesting, an episode that's quite interesting in terms of the way that it deals with these issues. And certainly the visual presentation of the like the hospital and so on for Star Trek is quite close to our own time it feels quite real it's kind of interesting that they don't do it in a very sort of futuristic sci-fi way they do it in quite a kind of real world way but it also has this very strange spin on the kind of I guess classically with Star Trek with a lot of these stories you get this kind of um, prime directive versus humanitarian Mm -hmm. uh, issue I mean even in the episode Symbiosis for example which although it turns out to be about a kind of drug addiction for most of the episode it seems like it's about a plague this is so this is kind of within the kind of frame of 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 these kind of areas and there you very much got you know dr crusher saying we've got to help people we've got to help people and captain Picard saying well we've got to you know stand back and follow the rules and so on dear doctor is a very strange one i think because it really pushes it puts it puts a real emphasis on this idea that Flox is this alien doctor. He's not. He's not Doctor McCoy. He's not Doctor. He's not any of the doctors we've seen before. He's coming at it from a different perspective. He's um, as he he says in one of the other Enterprise episodes, uh, Hippocrates wasn't a Denobulan. So there's this kind of emphasis that, like this is my perspective. This is my culture. These are my values, and my medical values are not necessarily the same as yours. Um, and I don't know, I mean, I think that's a very controversial episode, whether they do the right thing in the end, mm, whether yeah, Dr. Fox's position is really tenable or not. Uh, you know, what the kind of moral implications of that are. And obviously, and it's a bit heavy handed in terms of Archer has that awful speech about, you know, one day someone's going to come up with a directive <laughs> to, to tell me what to do. It's the kind of really, you You're know, like, the sort of oh enterprise and it's most kind of cringily <laughs> prequelling. But at the same time, it's a very dramatic interesting episode and there's a lot of interesting ideas in there it takes the kind of well-trodden epidemic storyline and definitely turns it on its head in a way for star trek yeah because in that way it's it's sort of showing that an epidemic actually might be a good thing i mean it's mm. not a good thing for the the species of people that are going to end up extinct but it's a good thing for perhaps maybe other like you said other um, species on the planet yeah in a similar way that um the uh, epidemic is or a contagious disease or pathogen is seen as a good thing in the Mark of Gideon. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Which is probably one of the most <laughs> unintentionally hilarious episodes of the original series that I've watched in a long time. I mean, I couldn't remember watching this the original the first time I watched it. I think I probably did, but I mean, yeah, this time I was, is, is I was laughing. Is it the bit when all the faces pop up suddenly? <laughs> I think it's partly the way it's edited, that scene. It's just like, because it, it's so jarring, but not in and a, also the not in a costumes, way. The costumes yeah. they're wearing, all the, like, they all look like they're like in like some sort of like, like they're dressed in wind socks or something. Mm. I don't know, you know, mm. it's very funny. But I, I mean, it is, it is a, there's actually a really good review of it written by Dayton Ward, I think. Oh, yeah. yeah online on tour.com if anyone mm-hmm. wants a good laugh and he basically rips the episode apart right. it, it is very funny but yeah that's an example of what of a, of a race of people who are so crowded that yeah. they're literally like nose to nose in rooms and across the planet and they want a, a, an illness that will I guess kill people off in a sort of natural selection kind of way mm. there's a, some I would say some serious prime directive issues with that episode but there's I mean it's interesting because actually in real world history 
obviously a lot of these diseases that we talked about historically, you know, they did kill huge numbers of people. Yeah. And obviously on a kind of individual human level, that, that's tragic. And, and, you know, we're lucky not to live through it. But at, no, but at the same like, time, there are, you know, thing. <laughs> well, but people who study these uh, diseases and the history of those times and so on, there are instances where people will say, you know, actually there was a real population crisis going on. This reduced the you know, the birth rate, this reduced these various different things, particularly diseases, because sometimes there are diseases that target, actually don't target the elderly, don't target the children, but target the kind of breeding generation, if you know what I mean. And, and then, you, you know, you do have a real impact on like how many yeah. kids are born the next day, I think, next year. I don't know. I think, I think that would be a, a, maybe a suspect, but rather okay argument if there hadn't been epidemics that had wiped out whole populations of sure. indigenous people. So, for instance, like the Aztecs and the Incas, mm. that they aren't here today. You know, we have basically ruins. The moment, maybe they wouldn't be here today anyway, because all empires rise and fall, don't they? But I think they fell well before their time. Yeah. Um, and it was because great swathes of people died from a contagious disease that they had no immunity to. And there is something to be said. There is some sort of responsibility that you bear, I think, as a, a, as a people or a culture making first contact with another bunch of people. I guess in those days they didn't understand disease in the same way that we do now. Mm. But in terms of Star Trek, they really do. So first contact, we never get the sense of first contact, actually, anyone worrying about the fact that they might be passing on some sort of illness. I guess it would cross, it would have to cross the species barrier, right? Mm-hmm. There is a really good book that I would recommend called uh, Star Trek, um, Star Trek book called IDIC, Epidemic. Mm-hmm. And it's all about a colony filled with Klingons, humans and Vulcans, and about an epidemic in which uh, actually crosses the species barrier mm-hmm. and it does actually lead to civil unrest and it can lead to a possibility mm-hmm. of violence um, and McCoy is very heavily involved trying to with a whole bunch of other doctors there's a whole swathe of characters from different species who are doctors and medical um, medical professionals and it, it primarily affects the Vulcans to begin with and then starts to start to affect other people uh, and so if this if there was an illness or an epidemic that would or some sort of contagious disease that would cross the species barrier. That is something you would have to think about when you're meeting another species for the first time. Mm. And you do, I think you do bear responsibility. You know, I mean, I think the Spanish are responsible for the decimation of, of the, you know, indigenous South Americans. And I think uh, settlers, you know, uh, sort of Western, Western European settlers are responsible for the decimation of uh, whole large communities, practically cities, to be honest, of Native mm. American Indians who are on the East coast of the U S. So, and I think, you can't. You have to wonder, like, who who were those people? Who were they? Who were they? Who were they? Would have been like. I mean, some cultures did die out. Like, mm-hmm. like what were their cultural practices? You know, what what was their society like? What would their ancestors or descendants gone to be like? I mean, a prime example is that Shakespeare's son died of plague, and we don't mm-hmm. know. Maybe Shakespeare's son could have been mm-hmm. the next Shakespeare. You know, I mean. <laughs> so I, you're right. There is a sort of natural selection element of it, but the problem is problem with a disease it's similar to war is you when you let out the box yeah, yeah there's no real way to rein it back in really no, is that's there? True. unless you have some sort of vaccine but that it took it took centuries centuries and centuries to get a vaccine for smallpox mm. and it is probably i would say one of the single biggest medical miracles well mm. it's not because it was it was a hard science that led to it but it's one of the singers single biggest medical advancements 
of all time is the smallpox vaccine. And it was, I think in 1979, they managed to completely eradicate smallpox. Mm. Think about 1979, I was born in 1983. It's not that long ago. Mm. So before that, it killed millions, millions and millions and millions of people. So you could say it's a natural selection aspect to it, like in the sense that we might have less people on the planet now than if all those people hadn't died of smallpox. But we're also talking about a huge amount of human potential. Yeah, just to, just to be clear, I'm not really advocating <laughs> the Dr. Block's position. <laughs> and so I, I'm with Captain well, we Archer. Never those, we, we, we never see those aliens again, so we don't really care about that. But first contact, but, I mean, first contact is... First contact yeah. definitely is, is a potentially dangerous uh, situation. I, I guess what, you, what we see... We, we see it in, uh, in the Voyager episode, the disease, in terms of sort of STDs and sexual contact, that there's, there's this kind of sense that that has to all be vetted and agreed in advance and so on whether or not Captain Kirk was filling in those forms, you know, week by week, who can say? But anyway, they seem to have some kind of system in play. I was just thinking when you were talking about the Aztec ruins and so on, actually the other episode that it called to mind for me, which, um, again, like the disease, is probably not a classic uh, of the Star Trek canon, but it's the Enterprise episode Extinction, oh, yeah. which is very much, is interesting because it is about this disease. It's about this disease that, weirdly, at the end of the episode, what we have is Archer chooses to preserve the disease because the disease in itself is the kind of, it's like the, the thing from the inner light. It's the kind of, it's the way that this society has managed to save something of itself is, is in this disease, bizarrely. But at the same time, there is also this sense of this uh, civilization that's crumbled and fallen into ruin. And there's also that sense in that episode, and, and there is in a lot of these episodes of the the other people who are trying to eradicate the disease and kind of the danger of overkill so you get in that episode those guys with the flamethrowers and they even end up incinerating their own uh, one of their own people because he gets infected uh, in macrocosm for example you've got the tac tac is that what they're called the the the, the weird kind of um, interpretive dance aliens yeah. <laughs> who, who turn up and want to sterilise Voyager by basically blowing it up. Um, <laughs> I kind of like that episode. It's weird, but They're one of the many weird things about that episode, but yeah. But, you know, so there's this idea, I suppose, in terms of the kind of narrative beats of of a lot of these episodes, they kind of follow the same sort of structure. You know, everyone starts getting ill. There's this kind of almost sort of ticking clock of, is there going to be anyone left? Then there's also this danger of, you know, someone else coming in and potentially you get to a point where actually once you work out the cure to the disease, the danger is not so much the disease itself, but then there has to be a secondary danger. So say in the naked now, uh, the ship's going to blow up or, you know, say in, in macrocosm, there's these aliens that come come and blow the ship up or you know so there's, there's almost like you have to fight a war on two fronts yeah. um, to keep it interesting rather than it just being a sort of medical story it's something that sort of seems to come up um again and again one of the things i think that's interesting that you mentioned you mentioned the inner light and actually that's not the example of a disease but actually it is the example of the complete destruction of mm. A species or a society and that is something that it does appear in extinction i think extinction is a pretty poor episode but yeah for, but, <laughs> but it, it does have the, there is a certain amount of pathos in the episode because of the fact that it is a completely dead society mm. and that's something again that you have in the babylon 5 episode Con- confessions and lamentations mm. there is no happy ending basically in, in the babylon 5 episode the species of uh, of alien that um are all suffering from the epidemic, it's the destruction of their race. There's no way to save them. They're all going to die out. And that's something that you don't find very often in Star Trek. And I think in the Observer effect, they're quite... They were quite clever, because you know that Trip and Hoshi are not going to die. You know that, because they're main characters. But you sort of of feel like they might, because, because... 
especially when, especially one point, Flox, it's not Flox, it's one of the observers actually says, you know, have you ever had any serious illnesses? And you can really get the feeling that they haven't actually, that mm. medical care is so brilliant in the future that people aren't really ever very sick. So something like this is actually really terrifying. And then when they actually are in, you know, in, in sick bay and they're declining very quickly, I thought it was a very realistic portrayal of how a very serious infectious disease can work that you can show mild symptoms to begin with and then you can decline very quickly to mm-hmm. the point where you like really are very very ill and it, it you know there wasn't any sort of strange uh gimmicky aspect to it like there was no flying they jelly pancakes or, or, yeah, they weren't exactly. turning purple they weren't like i don't know like dancing and screaming with their clothes in the shower or on in the shower or whatever they were actually just, just su- looked really looked really real. and they were suffering from respiratory Ill, yeah. distress right yeah. which is kind of what happens when people have some yeah. sort of terrible disease and so i knew they were going to die but it still was upsetting and well, that's kind of well what i, mean, I was that episode is, you know, it's very well directed it's very well like the acting is all very i think it's a very well made episode um observer effect so and part you know partly to be honest it's probably partly the makeup is is quite convincing they look really really sick and they play it really sick they don't play it like Hey, this is all a bit of a romp. We're in Star Trek. It's kind of, <laughs> you know, we'll be back next week. They kind, they kind of play it seriously. They sort of play it yeah. straight down the line. I suppose is the thing. And you know, I mean, these are quite bleak storylines potentially. I mean, the quickening again is a very, you know, really like downbeat, bleak Deep Space Nine episode, sort of classic Deep Space Nine episode in a way. And I suppose those, you know, Deep Space Nine in a way fitted that kind of storyline quite well of being able to tell a story where there's this expectation and it's almost kind of a sort of meta commentary in a way because there's this sort of expectation. Bashir goes in, I'm the heroic Star Trek character. I'm going to go and cure this plague. You know, and he even says, he, he says, you know, oh, there was some other similar disease and they, they, they found the d- solution in an hour. You know, don't worry, I'll get it. I'll sort it out in a week. He's got all this kind of arrogance, all this kind of hubris. Uh, and we believe it because we've seen Star Trek. <laughs> you know, we know that that's what's meant to happen. You know, Dr. McCoy or Dr. Crusher, whoever yeah. it is, will come in and, you know, about the sort of 42 minute mark, they'll find the cure and everything will be fine. And then, of course, in that instance, he doesn't. I mean, he, he does end up with a vaccine, so he's able to protect the children. But, uh, you know, by the end of that episode, he's back on the station. He's still up all night working on it because he can't really accept that he's yeah. failed, basically. He just hasn't been able to defeat this um, disease and you know I think that's one of the things that's quite shocking about these storylines and actually that book that I mentioned Doomsday book this is I'm going to spoil it for you Clara so you might <laughs> put your hands over no, your okay, if you, worry, if you don't want, want to know what happens at the end uh, and anyone who might be interested in reading it because it, it is an interesting book but so you know turn away now for a minute if you don't want to hear what happens <laughs> at the end one of the things that is really shocking and heartbreaking about that book and actually took me by surprise when I read it is everyone dies and it's just, it's Even relentless. the main character? Not the main, apart from the main character. The okay. woman from the future survives. Oh, but okay. literally everyone she meets in this plague-torn uh, okay. uh, England dies. And it's really shocking because, you, you know, you're used to, you know, the, the family, the children, the priest, the, yeah. every, everyone that you think in terms of your expectations of narrative, okay, this person is going to, you know, a few people will survive. Someone will survive. And you think, well, the priest's been helping her. You know, maybe he'll die heroically, kind of, in some way, saving the child or something. But ultimately, everyone dies. And it's just that kind of horrific bleakness of it that yeah. she is left with. And, you know, she survives because she's been inoculated in the future against these things or whatever. But despite all this effort that she puts into trying to help these people, to trying to teach them about, you know, how to protect themselves, uh, despite winning over their superstitions and kind of, you know, all this kind of stuff, um, 
it doesn't work. There's nothing she can do. And I suppose that's one of the things with a lot of these stories is this sense that these diseases are implacable. You know, they're very powerful, they're very fast, they're very dangerous, and there's not necessarily, you know, there's a limit to how much um, power we have to do anything about them. So how does that fit in with the utopian Star Trek ideal? So that's, that's the problem, really, mm-hmm. isn't it? Because Star Trek is dystopian sci-fi. It's utopian sci-fi, right? So... What I find a lot with a lot of the medical episodes, and this isn't this isn't just infectious diseases. This is anything to do with like injuries, anything to do with medical uh, medical episodes. Is there's almost always some sort of cure or some sort of uh, treatment that is pulled out at the last minute. You know, some doctor or whatever has come up with the idea, or he's trying to something revolutionary, or they have technology that will support them and save them and everything. Mm-hmm. So in a way, sometimes I get frustrated like that with stuff like that like someone breaks their arm and then they're there in sick bay still in their uniform they don't look in pain you know it's just like a little scanner's run over them and they're done but then it is utopian isn't it so mm. we're not supposed to suffer from illness often we're not supposed to there isn't supposed to be widespread death mm. um there isn't really supposed to be greed or hunger or poverty and so actually maybe epidemics don't do well in star trek maybe they aren't the right maybe star trek isn't the right medium to carry this kind of storyline well they tend to happen to someone else i suppose that's the thing they happen to an alien species so there's a degree of like you know there's sort of compassion for them but at the same time they're not usually happening sometimes they are happening to our people but at the same time generally the emphasis is on these kind of these slightly more primitive people who are suffering from them if you know what i mean and you you get that very much in that sense you know with bashir as this kind of frontier medic uh, almost is the uh, quickening is almost his sort of medicine sans frontiere kind of episode <laughs> isn't it he's going down those rolling sleeves up he's you know he's going to help the natives um and there's definitely that kind of uh you know in that episode as i said before the starfleet characters are protected you know as, as they are in that novel that i mentioned you know the woman from the future is protected by her kind of futuristic medical science and so on and i suppose that's the thing is that we see when we see a kind of a real epidemic story where there's a whole society a whole kind of you know something on that scale maybe often we we see that kind of protection then we have the storylines where something comes up onto the ship and everyone and the ship is the society that's potentially you know everyone might die uh, or the station if it's deep space nine you know maybe everyone on the station might die but at the same time i don't know whether you lose something there of the kind of social political you know you were doing like the, the, the stigma uh, which is something that comes up again and again in, mm. in some of these uh, epidemics in real life. And actually, interestingly, we were talking about the Mark of Gideon. I mean, the Mark of Gideon, what you have is Kirk is almost going to be celebrated as this kind of bringer of disease. But of course, in reality, you know, you, there's the stigma of people who suffer from a disease. If it's, you know, HIV or something, there's a stigma attached to that. But there's also, you know, the character Kirk is playing there is the Typhoid Mary character. The Typhoid Mary character is an absolute, you know, despised, reviled, kind of stigmatised person. The person who uh, can um, infect other people with a disease while not even suffering from it themselves. Mm. And, you, you know, the story of typhoid mary she was mary mallon i think her name was she was an irish cook in new york and she was she would basically go from family to family she, she was carrying the typhoid but not affected by it herself and so because she was preparing the food the family would all get ill and die and then she'd go on to another job and then you know a few months later she'd crop up somewhere else and it was only you know someone who'd been investigating these cases and realized that this irish cook was the kind of common factor and then you know first of all sort of 
um, took the story to the press, I think, and then got the police involved. And she ended up basically locked up, I think, for the rest of her yeah. life. Even though, in a sense, she was done, she was never she, she was never wrong. allowed to be free. Exactly, yeah. and, and she was very indignant about it, and sort of you know saying, "Look, I haven't done anything wrong. You know, why are you blaming me for this?" But there was absolutely that sense of you know, right, we can. I mean, accurately in this instance, but there's an element of kind of like, let's pin this on this person. This person is responsible. Uh, and obviously in the case of a disease, I mean, we have laws, for example, about if you knowingly infect someone with a disease, you know, what are the kind of legal ramifications of that? If you're HIV positive, for example, do you, is there an obligation to disclose that to someone if you're, you know, if they might be at risk of developing it? You know, definitely there's that, there's that interesting sort of switch where someone goes from being the victim of a disease to a sort of perpetrator of disease almost um and and weirdly that's the role that captain kirk is being asked to play in that episode but with the kind of weird inversion that he's going to be a kind of hero for doing it rather than a villain yeah that's true it's very true like he's like a, a welcome mm. typhoid mary isn't he he's a, he's a typhoid mary that they they that they want that they yeah. want cooking their meals <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah exactly i think there is still potential for there to be a better epidemic story um, in Star Trek, but I think the problem is that as 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 long as you have a series trying to show utopian values and uh, portray a better world, you want to imagine that such things as widespread infectious diseases that kill indiscriminately and cause widespread panic and destruction um, aren't aren't going to be part of that future. But the, there are other things that are destructive that are part of Star Trek, like war, for instance. So they seem to have solved a whole lot of problems, but they haven't seemed to solve war or terrorism or religious persecution or uh, just downright immorality. <laughs> so I think there is still potential for it. And perhaps maybe we will see something like that with Discovery, because Discovery has is a slightly darker Star Trek show mm-hmm. than all the other ones. But like you said, it is something that probably would deserve a longer storyline and mm. can't be just shown or talked about in one episode. I think in general, I think uh, Enterprise, Voyager, and perhaps the original series maybe did this slightly better than some of the others. But like, there are some good examples in Deep, Deep Space Nine. But I think that um, there's still potential for more. I mean, would you like it's to see... It's interesting you say that, though, because obviously, it, it, talking about the kind of utopianism, I suppose Next Generation is the most utopian of the Star Trek series, probably. Uh, and that's the one that you're sort of, by implications, <laughs> saying did a bad, bad job on this kind of... Um, on this... Not on, not, not on everything. Not generally. No, not no, generally, no, but, but in, just, on this particular... It's poorly matched with the idea of an epidemic. But then, I guess the point I'm saying is, why, why are stories about epidemics important? Like, why do we need stories about epidemics? And I think we do need stories about epidemics. I think because of the fact so many epidemics and plagues in history have been um, worse because of the actions and the reactions of the human beings suffering from them or the human beings surrounded by them. Uh, You really want a good leader in a situation like that. And Marcus Aurelius kept the bodies out of the streets Mm. by making it, um, by passing laws about how you buried people, by giving people, letting people, allowing people to leave work to attend funerals, all sorts of stuff like that. The Black Death, the leaders weren't good enough. So the Mm. laws weren't good enough. So there was like, like real widespread human rights abuses and a whole load of weird, freaky stuff that went down so i think stories about epidemics and plagues and pandemics are important and i think that if we are to venture out into space and we are going to be in different environments different climates under different strains then the idea that we wouldn't infectious diseases wouldn't play a part of our future 
Mm. It's just not realistic. So, but is there a need in Star Trek for such a story? That's the question. Mm. Well, I guess, you know, Enterprise would probably have been the show to do more of that in a way because they are very much at the kind of, you know, they're making, they, they should have been the ones making all the mistakes early on, if you know what I mean, for the other series to have retrospectively learned from, in a sense. <laughs> Like I said earlier, what we remember about enterprise and disease is this kind of obsession with these decontamination uh, procedures, and, and the fact that they seem to sort of take all of that quite seriously. So, so I suppose at least that, with that, you know, that anxiety was there, even if that's not necessarily why they put those scenes in the episodes. <laughs> that kind of they, they were they were sort of ticking that box in some ways. Of at least of they showed some hygiene control. Might be exactly hygiene <laughs> control, and something might be sort of transmissible in that way. Yeah, but I guess yeah, we'll have to wait and see whether Discovery decides to go back to this poisoned well at some point in the future (laughs) so to our audience tell us what you think are you uh frightened of epidemics are you frightened of pandemics do you think there's a need in star trek for such a kind of for such a story or uh do you think star trek's done it well so far do you think we're right do you think we're wrong um are there any episodes that we talked about that particularly you know tickled your fancy or made you feel ill (laughs) depending on it So it's been really interesting and a little bit frightening to take a look at epidemics, plagues and other diseases in Star Trek. Uh, But this is not the only subject that's been discussed on the network. So here's a look at what you might have missed elsewhere this week on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. It's a white uniform and you're dealing with medical blood, all this other stuff, fluids. Yeah. That thing ain't going to stay white. So in my head, they're treated that it just doesn't even stick. It just repels off it. Earl Grey. So Picard says he won't transfer anyone off the ship, but as a compromise, get ready for this. As a compromise, he will reassign Worf as Wesley's tutor. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Yes. Put some discipline in that boy. Oh my uh, gosh, that's so funny. This is like a choice you could, I, I don't know. I, I would imagine. And I really like this story. Like it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's, there's more later, but yeah, Worf is Wesley's tutor. Melodic Treks. And, uh, you know, I talked to the producers when I first did the show, and the first thing they had me do was take a combination of the dun da 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 you know, Sandy Courage, wonderful horn theme. And um, Jerry's, you know, his theme for the first movie and, and make a theme out of those and combine them. So I did it electronically and they said, good enough. And I said, I look, this is not my specialty. And they said, never mind, you got it. So 18 years later, you know, that was it. The 602 Club. I did definitely feel what you're saying, Matt, like it was a, a Bond greatest hits in that opening sequence. Um, you've got Russians again, well, or supposed to be in Russia. You've got, um, you know, a group of um, terrorists all gathering together about, you know, all these different weapons. And you're trying to ID people. And then, you know, we, of course, bring back in M. Um, and then she's having to argue now with... Um, the government and the military um, and then you know I like that they kind of bring in Bond in a subtle way calling him White Knight this time um, that was cool but yeah I, I think otherwise it feels very familiar but in a great way um, I feel like Arnold dealing with the music um, and then the actors as well taking good direction made a lot of intensity in that scene so you don't feel like you're moving into the film slowly they're coming at you full force and then you know bond runs off with the plane 
Um, so I, I really liked it. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favourite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and in most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place is to join the larger conversation at the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type in Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture. That will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. We are Primitive Culture and we are your hosts. My name is Clara Cook and you can find me on Twitter at Clara Jean MC. My co-host is Duncan Barrett, and you can find Duncan on Twitter, at Barrett's Books. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trek.fm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trek.fm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. Available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trek.fm. Now I'd like to express a big thank you to our executive producer, Amy Nelson. You can find Amy Nelson on the Earl Grey podcast on Trek FM. So thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. You're blended all